My approach this morning is to bring the narrative of Jesus's journey to the cross today. That's, that's my job today. Um, to do that and to try to make it move as fluid as I possibly can, I use this awesome resource that you can get for free online called the Harmony Gospel. The Harmony Gospel. And if you look up the Harmony Gospel, you can actually read through the entire gospel. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all those stories and accounts of Christ in chronological order. They're wonderful. It's a great resource. I think it opens up a lot of perspective. I think it even helps you see where others have thought like that there's discrepancies between the gospels. You start to see the humanity uh, of how they come together. It's a great resource that I would love you to look at. And some of you are nerds and I love my nerds. I married a nerd, okay? All right, and you love to fill in the blanks as we do the sermons. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm going to do for you exactly what I wish every teacher would have done to me. I'm going to give you all the answers right up front, baby. We're going to cheat together so you can just have it. And what I want to do is I'm going to give you these four points. I'm probably not going to reference them again. This is for you in your study, okay? Because all four of these things are the lens in which we're going to be looking at the rest of the morning, okay? So here it is. As we talk about the cross today, number one, Jesus resolved to obey his father. Jesus resolved to obey his father. I'm not breaking it down right now. I'm just giving you the answers. This is free class. You don't, it's, it's all in the syllabus too. Number two, Jesus resolved to fulfill prophecy. How do we know that he was the Messiah? Because he checked every box. Yo, so fulfill prophecy. I don't talk like that, Tom. Three, Jesus resolved to finish it. Oh, and we're gonna talk about what that means. And then four, our only reasonable response to the cross is worship. There it is. Fill it in, take a picture, whatever you got to do, because there's all the answers right up front. And now I want to pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus, asking you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. May we respond to you in worship. May we grow closer to you today, and may you call us to be resolved in following you as you went to the cross. We love you. We trust you. Hey, would you, would you pray for everybody who's, who's in the room right now, and pray for every person watching, watching online? Would you just pray for them however you feel led? If they get inspired, encouraged today, you don't know what they're walking in with. Would you pray for every person who's going to get invited to this Easter service and hear about the resurrection next Sunday? Would you pray for them? Pray that they have a wonderful experience, but most of all, would you pray that they surrender their lives to God? Would you pray for them? And pray they accept the invitation to actually show up. Would you pray for our lead pastor, Scott Blanchard, as uh, he prepares to preach on the resurrection three times next week? Would you, would you just pray, the, pray for the Lord to move in him and sustain him and his family? And then lastly, would you just pray for yourselves that, that just the Lord would speak sweetly to you and clearly to you today. Well, Jesus, we love you and we trust you. We are grateful to you. And it's in your great name we approach and say, amen. Amen. If you have not been a part of this series called Resolved, the title of the term Resolved was born out of a, a conversation that Pastor Scott and I were having. We are Bible nerds. We, uh, now, I know that that should be like a, yeah, pastors should talk about the Bible. There's always so much work to do. Sometimes we don't even get to just talk about Jesus. I know that that's how your life works, too. I know when people know that you're a Christian, they should think, that oh, you're a person who reads the Bible. But you've got a wild schedule, too. I'm sure of it. Or you've got a life that can distract and move you. And we were stopping and we're talking about Jesus. And we came across this great translation 
where it was talking about Jesus preparing for himself to, to, to be crucified. He understood what was coming, his disciples didn't. And it has this great line in one of the translations, the New Living Translation, where it says, and Jesus set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. I love that strength and character in Jesus. It was amazing and powerful. We were just talking about it. And then in the New Living Translation of John, I think it's chapter 8, it might be 18, where um, as Jesus, before he declares it is finished, it says it this way. And as Jesus had finished everything that he had resolved to do, it talks about his resolve. We were like, oof. I want to be resolved like Jesus. And it kind of birthed this, this series leading up to the time of Easter. And if you haven't heard and been caught up with the story, I really want to invite you to go past those two weeks and hear Pastor Scott's messages. They're so good and so profound. I would really love for you to hear that. But for now, where we last left Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has the council, Pilate, and Satan right where he wants them. You see, they think the people who are going to murder Jesus ultimately have finally got a way to have silenced him and to have stopped him completely. Jesus has this awesome moment during the sham of a trial that it was when he basically says to them, the only reason that any of this is happening is because the Father wills it. Oh, I love the way he talks against false power, establishing his own. And they're like, uh, okay, but we're going to kill you. And he says, only according to the will of my father, so the prophecy may be fulfilled. Oof, I love Jesus. I love the way he talks. And God has all of the chess pieces planned out in order to defeat sin and darkness forever. And what I want to do with you today is I want to give you a narrative version. I'll pepper in scripture where I can. But on your handouts, I have the list of the references um, for all of the different accounts. And again, you can, do, you can do a search online and you can go through the Harmony Gospel. And I dare you to do it on your own. But for now, let us have a moment of focus. Because as morning wanes after his trial, as Jesus stumbles out of the praetorium, horribly beaten and bleeding profusely, the Roman soldiers have been brutal in their creative cruelty. You see, Rome had figured out how to conquer people. Do you want to know how to conquer people? You take away their humanity. You make them not a person anymore. You break them away so where there are no ideas, there are no martyrs in which to be remembered. You defeat them and you ground them so completely that you embarrass them, you isolate them until there is no longer a them. They are just a loss. And you do it in such a profound way that nobody even knows how to look at you anymore. They separate you completely. They destroy your tribes. They destroy any memory of it. And they destroy complete generations of it. They don't enslave you. They murder you. And they humiliate you. And by way of your humiliation, and they have become experts in it. That's how they reign for a thousand years. It's not just in power, it's an out of making sure people don't feel like people anymore. That's how they get rid of you, is they un-you you. That's how they get rid of you at that time, and they're going to try to do this to him in their cruelty. Thorns have ripped Jesus's scalp and back in one uh, grotesque oozing wound. One historical description of the crown of thorns is that it wasn't necessarily like the ring that you and I have imagined together, but perhaps it covered a complete top of thorns buried into his scalp and pushed down. You ever had a splitting headache that was so bad that you couldn't think? They're truly trying to make him to a place where he is unable to even remember his own name, and yet our king's resolve is unwavered and unshaken. He never forgets why he's there. How strong do you have to be to be both broken and resolved? Golgotha, the place of the skull, is barely a third of the mile through the garden gate. But Jesus has no strength to manage the 40-pound crossbar. And Simon of Cyrene, a stranger, is drafted from the crowd. Perhaps because Jesus' friends are nowhere to be found. We know that John is somewhere nearby, but... Perhaps he's tending to Mary. Perhaps he can't be seen. It's a mob. A cross that Simon would later know was meant for Simon's sins. 
and I don't have time to get into it right now, but we've done some study and that there's a lot of suggestion in the Gospels and in the New Testament, further on in the New Testament, that Simon's sons actually become some of the first pastors of the local church. It changes this family forever. And 25, I just don't have time, but 25 minutes later, Jesus is hanging in sheer agony on one of the cruelest instruments of torture ever devised. Nails have been driven through his wrists, and which we only know because of the doubt of Thomas later that he will express in a couple of days. And a sign above Jesus declares in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, Aramaic who he is, the king of the Jews. Racism being put against him. They rob every part of your humanity. This is who you are. In Rome, and it's evil and hatred of all humanity. And a crowd is there. And I just ask you a question. People haven't really changed that much. Sure, technology is better, and, but people are people. What kind of people go to an execution to watch? I would at least suggest that they're probably not the best of the best. The people who enjoy watching people the, the macabre of it all. Who actually wants to be there? People who are evil, probably themselves. People who find delight in the suffering of others. Sick, twisted fools. And yet, Jesus' prayer for them, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Who forgives people like that? Who has compassion? I don't have compassion, I have distance. But Jesus... Praise for them. And this king is flanked on the other side by thieves. And around him are gawkers. People mocking him. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, some yell, Luke 23:35. This will be on your screen, Matthew 27:42. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe him. We haven't changed that much. We still think that if God did just the right thing, or if he answered the right prayer, then maybe finally will we believed in him. And it's interesting to me, and I wonder personally, I, I don't want to project onto scripture, but I do wonder if one of those mockers in that moment, saying, pull yourself down if you're still powerful, I wonder if that was Satan himself mocking him. Because it's a similar tone to when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 6, Satan says to him, If you're the Son of God, say if you're God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, for they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike foot against a stone. Satan loves to do that. Take a little bit of a Bible verse and twist it to manipulate and make it his own. Same thing he did in the garden when he brought temptation. Just twist, make you doubt, misremember your hearing of it a little bit. That's why we charge you to read the scriptures so that you don't get fooled. You know what I told my daughter one time? If I could wish any gift upon you to have, it's to know how to look up the truth on your own so that you'll never be deceived by another man. I'm really less concerned about men, but more by the devil himself. Jesus, knowing better, perhaps that was Satan taunting him. And one dying thief even joins in the derision. And they don't even understand that if the king saves himself, their only hope for salvation is lost. And Jesus asks his father to forgive them. To come back to the thief in just a moment. The creativity of the Romans, in order to make you feel like you're unhuman, we know that his clothes have been ripped away from him. Your clothes. Now, I know clothes can be cheap and they can be a part of fashion, but they are also a part of who you are. We all got a favorite shirt, right? Like, it's something that's, that's, that's you. I lost my dad last year, and I saw a picture of, like, one of his polo shirts, and it just, it, like, reminded me, and it kind of filled me with something, just remembering that's what my dad wore. Jesus probably only had one pair of clothes, and they were ripping it apart and gambling over it so they could collect it and send it out later. He had, his heart hadn't stopped beating yet, and they were already making game and sport of him, dehumanizing him. 
taking off his tunic, ripping it apart, trying to maintain it so they can get more money for it later. And at the risk of, of even this, you know, it's your body. And let me just tell you, even the most beautiful, nobody feels great about their bodies. Nobody ever just wants here and wants us to have like great attention to their body right now. All of us have some piece of shame in it. That's actually in the scripture Isaiah talked about the first time that he saw an angel, like he wanted to cover himself. He was ashamed. And as he's standing there and they take his hands and they stretch him out, it's not the comfortable, like, are your elbows okay? Do you have a bad back? Like, it's nothing like that. They pull his arms taut because there's no way to look cool or comfortable or anything else, but he's pulled and he's stretched. And then they fold his legs over, and then his feet are then crossed. And then they drive a nail through those feet. Never again will he feel comfortable. Imagine the way now that your hips would even begin to pull and your back out of place. Do you feel your body tensing up? And then some believe that even in that moment, because of the way that he was being stretched, when he was lifted back up and gone and his cross into the post hole that the cross would then sink, locking in and setting the nails against his body and his bones, his back against the cruelly formed cross. That at that point, as you hang and you are stretched, not comfortably posed for drama, but stretched, it's hard to breathe. So the best way to breathe in that moment is to literally push and pull yourself up in order to take a breath. Meaning in order to forgive his crucifiers, his murderers, he had to pull himself up to do so. And I want you to think about that for every word that he's about to share. That Jesus hurt to love with every word. The other crucified thief on the other side of him, he doesn't see somebody derive. He sees the Messiah and the mutilated man next to him. And he asks the Messiah to remember him. This is in Luke 23. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who has a kingdom? A king does. And this thief calls him a king. And I picture Jesus looking at one of the mockers, perhaps Satan himself, and says, I already got one. Scoreboard. Jesus' prayer in that moment has beginning to be answered where hundreds of millions will eventually follow. <clears throat> it is mid-afternoon now, and an eerie darkness and a silence has fallen for everyone, and everyone is on edge. But for Jesus, the darkness is a horror that he has never known before. This, right now, more than the nails and the thorns and the lashings, this is what made him sweat blood in the garden. The Father's wrath is hitting him in full force now. He, in this moment, is no longer blessed, but the cursed, Galatians 3 tells us. He has become sin, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. But his mind and his heart remain resolved to the task at hand. And yet still his character and caring sees Mary brokenhearted. You see, the Lord is always close to the brokenhearted, and he is still the Lord, 100% God, 100% man. In suffering, he has compassion. And he says this, John 19, this will be on your screens. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which was John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. You know, John didn't feel worthy to write the book of John. His disciples had to beg him. The man had been boiled alive. 
He didn't think he was worthy even after all of his suffering. To me, when I've gone through suffering, I almost feel like more worthy to do a thing. I'm like, I've paid my dues. That's what we call it, not Jesus. That's just not how our king thinks. He's thinking about the care of a suffering person. In fact, as Jesus was on the way to the cross, this amazing moment where there are people sobbing and crying and mourning him, he actually turns with compassion towards them. And he says, don't mourn for me now. Mourn for those who are coming later, for there are those who are going to wish that they never had children to bring into this evil world. Jesus is already thinking about the future, for he knows his mission and his task at hand. What a king. He also knows that 400 people eventually are going to die to testify that they've seen him resurrected. 400 people, confirmed by history. Do you know why we don't practice um, uh, torture in America anymore in the United States? It's because it doesn't work. People will say eventually whatever it takes in order to get you to stop torturing them. They will give you false testimony. We've actually found that there's been more false testimonies that have happened in the American justice system because of different ways of torturing people mentally. We test it less. So why wouldn't they just say, I didn't see him? Because they saw a crucified Jesus coming back to life. 400 witnesses, just one, had to say he's not there. But when you understand, because you see firsthand that this life is not the life, then kill me. Because no grave is going to hold me down. Mary leaves. His mom goes. The disciple whom he loved, perhaps his very best friend, is gone. And in terrifying isolation, cut off from his father and all humans, he screams out an Aramaic phrase that translates, and this will be on your screen, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's a human question to ask. It's a fair question. And this is the way that Jesus, God, asked this question. In the way that Jesus asked the question, our king did it by quoting another king. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No greater love, humility, or obedience has ever or will ever be displayed in this moment. Shortly after three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus, suffering, whispers hoarsely for a drink. In love, he drained the cup of his father's wrath to the dregs. He has borne our full curse. There is no debt left to pay. He's taking on his father's wrath. You know, raising kids is hard, and I... I got to tell you, I, I, I haven't yelled at my kids very many times, but one of the times I yelled at my daughter, my oldest daughter, is she lied once. She's probably not crazy about me talking about this, but she, she lied once. You know why? Because she's a human being, and all of you have lied before, too. I'm just assuming because you draw breath. And in that lie, I wanted to have a moment with her because the lie, what does a lie do? It makes it hard for you to trust somebody. It separates me from my kid. So one time I said, honey, I'm going to talk to you, not like you're my kid, but like you're the person who separated you from my child. Hey, moms and dads, what do you do if somebody separates you from your kid? Oh, it's going to be a bad day for that separator. And I yelled, and she felt the fear. Let me ask you this, and this is terrible, but we are addressing a terrible thing here. Somebody kidnaps your child and hurts your child for you to not be able to ever see your child again. What do you least long for to do to the person who separates you from your kids? Because you are your father's child and we have all been separated. And finally, there is a sacrifice worthy enough to take on the full brunt. You get in the way between me and my children, much less you kill my child. I want justice, and Jesus pays it all. Taking that from his dad. And then Jesus experiences hell, which is separation from God in that moment. And his father, as we believe, turns his back on him. There's no debt left to pay. 
And Jesus, with nothing left to give, the wine moistens his mouth that he has just called for because his lips are too dry to pray. And he finds just enough breath and just enough will. This is what's cool when you read the different gospel accounts. Some say he said some words. Some think that they hear him say, and they hear him say, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. But one thing that's greeted across the board is he says this. It is finished. It is finished. Dad, get the kids back. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. For no one can take the king's spirit away. He gives it. Still in power and in full authority, my king reigns in that moment. And with that, God the Son dies. It is the worst and best of all human deaths. For on this tree, he bears our sins in his body. Peter said it this way, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And now it is finished. You know, to worship is to honestly approach the throne and call him by his true name, God, King, King Jesus. And sometimes we worship God by asking why. I, I genuinely believe that if you don't have a little bit of doubt, if you don't have a little bit of questions, I'm concerned by the depth of your faith, to be honest. Because to grow deeper and closer to Christ is to be filled with more mystery that makes you crave and wanting more. If you don't want any more and you are unsatisfied, I would just say that the king, the author of life, is what Paul describes him as, is not mysterious enough to you yet. Want more. Ask more. Go deeper. God, why would you do this? But for the disciples who remember when Jesus said earlier in his Gospels, pick up your cross and follow me, it makes a little bit more sense. Why do you do this? And let me just ask you, I, genuinely, how are you supposed to feel right now after hearing that story? Well, it's not about how you feel. It's about how you choose to respond. Your life is your choices. One great guy, I heard say one time that you're born, look, we're born looking like our daddies, you die looking like your choices. How do you choose to respond in that moment? To carry a cross is to decrease by dying to yourself. And you and I can decrease to be set free in his increase and rest in knowing that it's finished. To know and practice a a faith where it is finished is to see the cross where Jesus's power and authority become proclaimed. And you'll hear me say this almost every week as your worship pastor. Worship is the only reasonable response to who God is and what he has done. And worshiping isn't singing songs, it's dying to yourself. And this is all over the Bible almost annoyingly so, it's all over the Bible. Every once in a while, I want to read the New Testament and get encouraged. And then Paul is like, also, by the way, die to yourself. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. First Corinthians, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. He loves the church, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die Every day, Jesus said in Luke 14, whoever does not bear my cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice he doesn't say, won't make a very good disciple. He says, cannot be my disciple. Paul says to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Romans, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus says in John, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. How many of you feel lonely? 
Oh, man. How we crave to not feel loneliness. The right friendship, the right spouse. You thought you had enough. You finally found somebody who would deal with you and all your weird. You found somebody you could finally deal with their weird and you put a ring on it. And then you still feel lonely at the end of it. This is because another human being is not the satisfaction to your loneliness. You weren't created for that person. You were created for him. I believe that marriage at its best is two lonely people going to the Savior together. They are not your answer. And if you think they are their answer, they are your God and they will fail you. To go back to the analogy of the seed, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Wherever I am. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Peter said it this way, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For I consider, in Romans he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Luke chapter 9, this is Jesus talking again. This is on your screen. And he said, To all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? How? Jesus calls you to die. What love wants you to die to yourself? A love that in your emptiness, he can fill it. In your weakness, his strength is made perfect. And so many of us just want to be strong. Remember, how do you do it? How could you possibly do it? What kind of behavior would say that you've died to yourself? That's impossible. It sounds like no one's going to be that great or the perfect Christian of all time. But remember Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? He says it this way. In Matthew 5, 5, he says this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek. Blessed are the meek. What does a meek person look like? Well, I'll tell you one thing. The meek, they're a peculiar people. Dear Christian, are you peculiar I know some of you are like peculiar, but just a brief moment of levity in the midst of the heaviness. But peculiar. And I would also just ask you, what do your neighbors think of you? Do they find you peculiar? Or do they find you hateful? Because you've made it very clear what you're against. Good for you. Do they know how much Christ loves them? and sees them, and how much he endured for them and for you. Dear Christian, are you the other way? The extreme opposite? Are you living a Christian life where you're just begging for people to know that you're not like them? Oh, that's them. They're judgmental, not me. But can, I, can I just be really honest with you? And I say this with love and affection and seriously no judgment because we are all just trying to figure it out together. That's why we're in community, Okay. You are not going to cool anybody to Jesus. It's just not going to work. You, you be as woke as you want, homie. It's not going to cool anybody to Jesus. So you can be as reformed as you want or as woke as you want, but can I just be really honest? The only thing that can bring someone to Jesus is the fact that Jesus made a way on the cross for our sins. We are in the soup together, and the only way out is his platform. Do people find you peculiar? And you know what's really, really hard? This kind of peculiarity can't get summed up in a soundbite. 
People do not like nuance anymore. We hate nuance. We want to know if you're in or if you're out with us in one way or another. And I just want to tell you, Jesus isn't in or out with you. He calls you to die to you, in fact, and to be all about his father. Which one do you want? You want to line up right or do you want to die to yourself? Because the more you just try to figure out what kind of path you're on and not what kind of Savior's name you sing to, do they know your list of beliefs or do they know the name of Jesus? Die to yourself. Decrease so that he may increase. Do you want to know what's weird about meek people? You won't always be able to spot them because they're the ones who don't have the right answer to every question. They don't. And they know that they don't. Now, there's this great thing that I've only heard rumors about where there used to be in, in past generations. There were the people who knew stuff and the people who knew they didn't know anything. Now we think we know everything because we can get to the Google box and find it really quickly, and we're not a lick smarter for it, honey. Like, it's crazy. I mean, the meek is the one who doesn't always have to have the final word. The meek is the one who doesn't need justice and revenge. The meek is not the one who always has all the best quotes, who knows all the best worship songs. The meek is not the one in the life group who always knows all the right responses and must respond to every single question. Now listen, we need those people. We need people who actually know what's going on. We need people who can give the right response in life group. We need you. Please come, please. Because I get lost in there too. But that's not the definition of meek. It's not the definition of arrogance necessarily either. I mean, it could be, but man, only Jesus knows the heart. You might just read energy on people poorly. I, I just got to ask you, are you meek? The meek, they have that divine kingdom power that we can only see when we look at it through the lens of the cross, not just what we think is Christian. The temptations that many Christians, myself included, you know, honestly, is we have a hard time spotting meek because we're not attracted to meek. Now, now, and listen, this is not judgment, okay? This is sincere. This is just how people work, and this is totally natural, okay? Totally natural. But when we look for a church, most people come and look in their church, and they want to make sure that the music is not terrible, and they want to make sure that the preaching is good. What if the most meek, most Christian man or woman that you've ever met is the person who doesn't quite know how to always nail it on every sermon, on every Sunday? What if the meek person is the one who actually just demonstrates to you how to practice your faith in Christ? Well, you might get a boring service every now and then, but you can get a full life. We got enough people doing reviews, right? <sighs> Temptation is that we're buying into, we think we need this like strong and mighty man or woman of God to lead us when the strength and the most mighty is demonstrated to us and how Jesus reigned. You want power? Get on the cross where Jesus was at his most power. You want to walk in power? You die to yourself. You want kingdom power? Then you serve others. You want the big kingdom power? You empty yourself of you. You still need to know who you are. I'm not saying, like, don't understand yourself. I'm not saying don't understand your worth. I'm not saying let people walk all over you and get abused. I'm not saying that. you got to do some work. I'm just saying you can't be a narcissist and expect it. Self-awareness is healthy. Understanding that. Do the work. I'm totally pro all of that. But I'm also at, once you know who you are, then say, Jesus, Dump it all. I'll lose it all. It's all on the table for you, for the cross, so that everyone that I could possibly ever know will know. But the power of God flowing through this is about you humbling yourself, considering others above us, serving others, picking the worst seat in the auditorium. Next Sunday is Easter. We've got three services. They're going to be packed, and I can't wait. And you want to know what a meek person will do? Is when you turn around and you scooch into the worst spot in the aisle, which means you don't sit on the end, you sit in the middle. Because somebody else is going to run late. Because people, especially if they've got kids, sweet mercy, I don't know how anybody ever makes it to church anymore. Like, I feel like when I'm getting my kids locked into a car, I'm getting them ready for the next moon landing. It's just clicking and clacking everywhere. Like, and they finally get their kids to get there. You tried to put shoes on a four-year-old? It's impossible. So, I like, you get here, and then that person gets here, and then they can't find a seat. And then you get up out of your seat, and you say, please sit here. I'm so glad that you're here. And you don't even tell them your name. 
Because they don't need to know your name. They just need to know one name. And then you go to the back and then you stand. And then when that row fills up, then you go out to the lobby and then you watch. And then you watch the security and parking lot guys who are freaking out because we're out of spots. And you go home. <laughs> and you watch on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Or you park at CVS or you park down the street and you walk up and down Mound Road and you pray or you walk around this building for the entire service praying, Jesus, Jesus around this whole place. Jesus, win every heart. Jesus, come and get Macomb. Jesus, come and get him. Because who cares if you see an awesome sermon again? Do you need another one after today? What, how many do you need? Jesus. And you pray for every person and you pray for every kid. And you pray for the kid who's having an anxiety attack and the mom and dad who finally took the risk to bring their kid who's on the spectrum who can't handle loud noises but they thought maybe they're ready today. And you pray and you beg and you say, Jesus, win. Because he is. And your precious memory from that morning is, I don't know what they talked about in there but I know who won. You take the task that nobody else at work wants. You get remembered as the one who stops quoting your job description and starts living the lifestyle. You're the one who's willing to make your kids mad at you because you're going to crack the word open together because YouTube is so cool and it's hard. I feel like I'm pushing my kids so much to do mo mo so many things. I get tired of pushing. And their little hearts, they're already experiencing the anxiety of this world. But I'll tell you what, the world is going to die someday. And I would just love for them to know a name better than remembering how much they liked their dad. I would love them to know their father in heaven. And the more that you do that, the more you realize that when you empty ourselves, God's power can flow into that emptiness and start using you. And the more that you make the world about you and you start doing, what about me, what about me? You know that that's another nickname that they have? I mean, millennials or whatever, you know, we're a whole bunch of entitled folks. And then the boomers before you, you know what the generation before you called you? the what about me generation, the more that we have that, we're just people. It's always been like this. It's always been one generation saying the next, look how full of themselves we are. It's great, man. I, something that I'm remembering after I turned 40 is something that I said in a snarky meeting one time that got me in trouble with a lot of deacons, where I said, kids think they know everything and elderly people know that they know everything. Like, I'm actually finding out that I was absolutely right about that because I know everything now. Like, listen, you start emptying yourself of you. Weird things start happening. You predict the future less. You measure success less because you start just saying, I don't have any measurement other than are you being glorified right now because I love you. Because the more that you make it, what about me? The more you've created this upside down kind of world that this was set right side up by Christ that he created on the cross. Okay, Tom, but me, you know, you're very passionate, and I love seeing a passionate guy up there. And you're an emotional dude, good for you. Yeah, like, and I love you, and I'm glad that there's emotional people like you in the church. I, people say the sweetest things to me sometimes like that. They're just like, I just love your passion. I was a fifth grade basketball coach for one time, and I walked in on my fifth graders talking. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I am not a highly tuned athlete. And they were putting together their dream team of basketball. And I was on the team, okay? I was on the team and the sixth grade coach was on the team and Kobe and LeBron. <laughs> I know, isn't that sweet? It's like, coach, Coach Gibson, man, you're so tall. You're so tall. And you know what I'm gonna be? Homie, I'm not tall, you're just so short. Maybe I'm not so passionate. Maybe you're just short. Be passionate. Man, it doesn't look like this for everybody. 
passionate doesn't turn into getting all giggly on a stage and making jokes that Pastor Scott is going to get an email about later. You know what being passionate is? Is notice Tom a lot less and start asking questions about the cross. It's not about you. I'm not, I'm not asking you to be emotional. I'm calling you to worship. I'm calling you to worship. And worship, just like love, is not about saying or singing all the right things. Love and worship are a verb. Because verbs are actions. It's a choice. You know, when I talk to people about what being a kind person is, kind isn't that you always feel the right thing to do. Oh, I'm a terrible person because I didn't want to do the whatever. Well, did you choose to do it anyways? Because that's who you are. One of my favorite quotes that keeps running into me is that we're born looking like our daddies, but we die looking like our decisions. And honestly, too, just to be compassionate with you more is just, I know what it's like to feel like you're just too tired. And I'm not calling you to fake it till you make it. I wouldn't ask that of you. The, the world has enough fakes, man. Just leave that business for Facebook, okay? Like, I, just the perfect selfie all the time, okay? Like, I, I do it too. I have an app where I can whiten my teeth. Like, it's just, it's just because I just don't even want people thinking about it. Oh, man, I'm giving my secrets away. I get it. I don't want you to do it. Can I just be honest with you? None of us are talented or whatever enough to talk about the cross. I'm not enough. But Jesus' message from the cross through his blood sacrifices, it is finished. It is finished. The Tom, if you only knew. You don't know what it was like to be me, Tom. I don't. You're right. But it is finished. You don't know, and I'm not beating up on the folks who are brave enough to be watching online or showing up in here today. I know you're my choir. I know how hard it can be too, where you're like, I just come in on Sunday, and I just need to get lifted up because this world is so heavy. I know. Come to Jesus, for his burden is light because it's finished. If you only knew, he does, and it is finished. But I have failed my kids. Well, he knows the truth, and it is finished. But I lied. It might be discovered. And that lie is finished. But I'm impure, and it is finished. But the trauma continues to trigger me. Give it to me, he says, because it is finished. But I might get hurt again. But it is finished. I don't want to start over. So don't start over. Act as if it's finished. But I'm so angry. Hey, he sees, he knows why, he carried it for you so that it can be finished. I thought I was better and I'm just not. Why be better when it can be finished? I've tried before and I failed. Isn't it good to know that it's already finished? The perfect Christian, the perfect moral person, the only kind person finished it all. Don't tell me your limitations or your schedule. If you boast about anything, boast only in the cross. See yourself less and the results will not discourage you. The suffering will tax you, but it will not stop you. And the reality, my friends, is that death is coming for you. And we don't like to talk about it. I hate thinking about it. Existential crisis. Why does it feel like torture to think about death? Why? I believe it's because you were not created to die. It's inhuman. It's become human because of sin. I don't think that God creates Adam and Eve in the garden and breathes into dirt to say, gonna kill this later, takes a dust and ribs and say, like, can't wait for this thing to suffer and die. But sin kills. And you can't build walls high enough to keep the sin of the world away from you. Isn't it good to know that if you surrender, it is finished. Because you won't be done. You have a benevolent king who will never lead your side regardless of life's circumstances. And suffering is not in vain as long as it glorifies him. So we say here a lot that God will never waste a hurt. He won't, but you might. You might. That's the truth. You can waste your hurt. 
some of you have yet to realize, not that you need to tell everybody everything that you've been through, but to also know that in your heart, you made it where others haven't. You know that you have suffered and endured things that are such deep tragedies, some of them self-inflicted and some by the evils of others around you. And can I just tell you right now that the fact that you are sitting here today with any openness whatsoever to God means that you are stronger than the world even knows and that your pain has the opportunity to be your greatest platform. When I put my wife into a helicopter, and saw her head strapped down where she couldn't move. My wife is looking at me and I'm praying over her. She's terrified and doesn't know how to talk. And she knows that she loves her kids and in her humanity, she's also terrified because she knows that I'm an emotional guy and all my wife can say is calm, 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 calm. She doesn't want me to panic and freak out. And they take her away. And I go outside, and I got out my phone, and I recorded the helicopter flying away. Can I just tell you why I did it? And I'll be, I'll be totally honest with you. Because it's all a waste when I thought I was saying goodbye to my wife. If I don't come back here and tell you that I will see her again, and thinking in the moment, I will glorify the Lord with this come what may. The pain become the platform. The pain become the platform. The most beautiful altar you will ever have is in your own limitations because it's emptied of you and gets filled with him and he is beautiful. And then, as my wife is learning how to describe and understand what the color blue means, she teaches herself how to speak again, how to walk again, and starts to be able to form sentences again. And just as she's at a point where she's able to type again, she can't feel her right side, but she can still type because she's a, just a maniac of strength. You think that she can do that because it makes human sense? Mm -mm. And then Karen, our pastor's wife, says, Jenna, now that you can almost function as a human being, stand up and share your testimony. And she says yes into a room filled with women. She reads her testimony and declares the goodness of God. And it's received in a way that would not have been received by a Christian who has just said, I'm just saying that the blessings are real. Her blessing was the fact that she was not alone. Another hurt that's real is church hurt. Man, we're good at hurting each other. And I remember my first day at Lake Point. And uh, I, I didn't get hired to be the worship pastor. I actually told Pastor Scott, he was interviewing me. I thought he was just taking me out for tacos. And, I, and like we're, we're talking and I told him like, I never want to be a worship pastor again. I honestly, guys, I didn't want to be a pastor again. It just, I was literally asking the question. I don't know if this was worth it. And I was terrified of being hurt again. And honestly, I was terrified of hurting you. I, I really, like, I, I, just, I was just so scared. Like, they hurt me, I hurt that. Like, I just don't want to do this again. I, I don't know. And then Pastor Scott had had a, a cross brought in, and it was in the front, and I'm sitting in the, in the gymnasium at Lutheran High North, and I'm looking at all the heavy stuff that's going to have to be lifted up, and I'm like, they're going to make me lift that someday. <sighs> like, the speakers, the chair, oh, the, oh, all of it is just like, please, no. I saw Karen, you know, like... I, the pastor's wives that I grew up seeing who were amazing women of God also had perfectly kept hair. And like Karen has to ch probably change outfits because she's sweating because she's unrolling rugs. And I'm like, please, Jesus, no. When I came in as a guest to lead worship on Labor Day, I don't know if I ever told you this. Did I tell you that I couldn't sleep the night before because I was like, Jesus, please don't call me to this church? And Jenna said to me, don't worry, God won't put you in a portable church again. Mm wrong. Like, it was just like, I didn't want to be here. Okay. And like, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I don't want to do this again. But that cross, I wouldn't do it for any other reason, but that cross and it moves me. And then this hand touches me and it's Scott and Scott is playful with me. We have a wonderful relationship and I stress him out, but we have a wonderful relationship because <laughs> of the emotional guy thing. And 
it, it, he says, hey, come with me, Tom. I want you to come and, and meet the, the leaders of uh, LP Kids. You know, we, we huddled together as leaders. And uh, I literally think in my head, run. It's like, you can go. You barely know this guy. So what? It, like, I live in Sterling Heights. Like, who cares if some schmo in Shelby Township thinks, you know, that I'm weak? I don't care. Get out of here. Like, there's people in here. They're going to hurt you. And it didn't take long, by the way. And you're going to hurt them. Probably did it that day. I don't know. And, like, I am terrified. And, like, I remember, like, I'm walking behind Scott. Like, okay, how do I, how do I tell him, like, hey, I'm really sorry. I got to go. Oh, really? Like now, it's run. And like, I'm, I'm ready to get out of there. And he turns around thinking that he's funny. I only told him this for the first time a couple weeks ago. And he turns around and goes like this. It's too late now. <laughs> you tell me the spirit of God doesn't act in humor. That cross. How do you respond? That cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt, contempt on all my pride. Love so amazing. So divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. What I'm about to say and what I'm saying about the cross and its value and the intensity of its preciousness won't go home to you if you feel pretty good about yourself. I deserve to breathe. I deserve to go to school. I deserve to have clothes. I deserve to have a car. I deserve to have a computer. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. You don't deserve anything but hell. Now, if you don't believe that, the rest of my message would just not make sense. And so I'm praying in my heart that sin will land on us this morning so that we will sweetly cherish the cross because the cross is foolishness and stumbling block for people who don't feel desperate who feel pretty good who feel like they deserve the job they have deserve the health they have deserve, deserve, deserve and if, if you're there would you just open your eyes? Would you just open your eyes to feel this? You have to see how high God is in his worth and his holiness and his beauty and his purity and his deserving infinite praise, infinite obedience, infinite allegiance, infinitely intense love. And we give him what? little bit every now and then during the day we think of it and we don't feel bad about it because we don't see him we don't see how magnificent he is and what he deserves and so the gap this infinite gap between God and me I don't see that I don't feel that and so all this talk now that you're about to talk about the cross being that which you exalt in for every blessing so that you're exulting and boasting in everything is a boasting in the cross that bought it for you. You deserve nothing from God but hell because he's so great and you have sinned against him by ignoring him or neglecting him or defying him so consistently in your life. You come nowhere near the bottom of the line that he deserves from you. Boasting and all exalting in anything should be a boasting in Christ and the cross is because if Christ had not died for me to cover my sin and to be a righteousness on my behalf, all 
I would get from God is judgment. And now, because He's covered my sin, has been a righteousness for me, I get wave upon wave upon wave of grace. So that every time I taste some grace, it's a cross issue. If the cross purchased for me all the benefits I receive as an undeserving sinner, every benefit in which I exalt is an exaltation in the cross or I'm a blasphemer. That's not hard to understand and it's the essence of the gospel. He died to purchase for me everything good and everything painful that will be turned for my good. All I once held dear and built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. I love you, Christ crucified.